morning, everybody. How are we doing? Uh, if you've got a Bible, open it up to Genesis. If you don't, the Bible in front of you is available. We will be on page one, I guess. <laughs> uh, we've been uh, in the book of Genesis for a couple weeks now. This is our second week in the text. We did some introduction, and last week we took a look at verse one. Uh, this week we're going to focus on verse two. Um, as always, we are um, in, we're trying to interact with one another as a body as we interact with the text. So we are going to be doing a Q and R today at the end of um, my comments. So if you have questions any, at any point along the way, you can anonymously text them to that number, and um, we'll uh, work through some of them if we have time at the end of the message today. But first, I, I want to do a little. I want to do a little uh, visualization experiment. I want you all to close your eyes. I want you to imagine the ocean at night. It's a, it's a cloudy night. There are no stars in the sky. You are in the water, and it is pitch black. What does that feel like? You can open your eyes. What are some emotions associated with that? Fear? Anxiety? Yeah, that freaks me out. I don't even like the lake because there's like fish that you don't know are down there. No land, no light, no hope. Just water. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 says, uh, well, verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We talked about that. This is, that's the kind of introductory statement. And then the author moves on basically saying, and this is how it happened. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, if you're a longtime Bible person, you're very familiar with this. You've, you've read through Genesis. You've heard this talked about. It's just kind of the beginning of the story. But if you're not a real uh, longtime Bible person, here's a question. Why are we talking about water? It's the very beginning of time, the very beginning of the universe, and there's all this water everywhere. Maybe you've never thought about that, but it's a pretty normal question. This is a clue that we have. We've been talking about this, but there's, this is a clue that Moses isn't telling the story of the beginning the way we would assume you would tell the story of the beginning. Moses has a different, what we call the cosmology. His way of viewing the world is different than ours. The people that he's writing to understand the world differently than we do. And he's telling his story in a different way. So when we think about the beginning of everything, when we think about existence, a good question to ask is, what does it mean to exist? What does it mean to be? This is called, if you're a philosophy student, this is called ontology, the idea of being. And it seems like it's an easy question, but it's, it's not really. Think about this building, 
when did this building begin to exist? There's a plaque out on the front that has a date on it. Was it, was it when that plaque was put up? Was it when they broke ground? Was it when the architects came up with the drawing? Was it the first time they held a church service in here? Or maybe it was when all of the materials that were used to make the bricks and the floor and everything were first quarried. What about our church? What about Revelation Church? When did Revelation Church begin to exist? Was it when God stirred in Joanna and my hearts to plant? Was it when I finally settled on a name? Was it when we applied for nonprofit corporation status with the state? That when we began to exist? Or was it our first core team meeting at my house? Or the official launch date in September of 2018? And then if you run it backwards, what would cause our church to cease to exist? Would it be if we lost our building? Or there was no more funding to, to pay for the things that we pay for? Would it be when all the people left? That's kind of a complicated set of questions to kind of pinpoint when does something actually start? In our cosmology, in the way we understand the universe in our everyday, we think existence is a material question. We look at things and we want to know about their, their weight and their composition and where they came from and what they are. What is it? In the ancient world, ancient people, they understood existence as a functional question. They didn't ask, what is it? They asked, what is it for? What does it do? Existence was much more closely tied to the role something played in the world than it was to its material properties. Uh, Bible scholar John Walton says, in a functional ontology, to bring something into existence would require giving it a function or a role in an ordered system, rather than giving it material properties. Consequently, something could be manufactured physically, but still not exist if it has not become functional. Me and Spencer and Trevor are, have decided to go into cryptocurrency mining together. And so we pulled some resources and bought a computer. So when do we actually start mining cryptocurrency? Is it when we've bought the computer? Because it's just a bunch of parts. Maybe it's when we've assembled the computer or installed the programming I kind of think it's actually when we start earning money. That's when we can say we're crypto mining, when there's actually something happening. It's a functional existence. See, if, if our Bible was offering us a, an account of material creation, it would make sense that it would start with no material. But if the Bible's offering us an account of functional creation, it would make sense that it would start with no function. And that's exactly what we find that it does. In verse 2, we read, Now the earth was formless and empty. Moses isn't really concerned about how it got that way, about the material properties of the earth. He's interested in the function of the earth. The words formless and empty are the words tohu wabohu in Hebrew. That's kind of fun. Uh, Everett Fox translates these words wild and waste. 
Basically, this place is a mess. We come on the scene at the very beginning and everything is a mess. And we need to resist the urge to ask, how did it become a mess? That's not Moses' point. What we're meant to understand is this is the natural way of things. We're supposed to think of a totally purposeless, useless chaos. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. Okay, so this watery depths, it's the word to home in Hebrew. You remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about other ancient cosmologies. We said, we'll learn something about what Moses is doing if we look at how other cultures describe the beginning of the world. And we looked at Babylon and Canaan and Egypt. And, and in uh, Canaan and Babylon, the, the chief gods, the gods that represented them, at the beginning of time, they fought off a sea monster. The, the ancient waters that, was, that, that are also kind of a dragon or whatever, and then they, they killed the dragon, and they cut the dragon in half, and that's how they make the world. That dragon, that sea monster, that chaos is called Tiamat in Akkadian. And that word Tiamat is the same word as the Hebrew word to home. And so Moses is using the same kind of imagery that his, the other cultures were using to describe this chaotic water. Moses doesn't believe that this chaotic water is an enemy, is a sea dragon. It, it's not a threat. We're going to see that it, God is not threatened by this. But if you were a Babylonian reading Moses' account of creation, you'd be like, oh, I know this story, but it's, it's different. It's not like the one I grew up with. The Tahome isn't a threat to God, but it's often a threat to people. Look at Genesis 7:11. In the 600 year of Noah's life, we're going to get here in a, in a number of months. In the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open. The floodgates of the sky were open. This is the beginning of the flood. God is going to judge the world in the flood, and the way He does it is He releases the Tahome on the land. Exodus 15 says, he, God, threw Pharaoh's chariots and his army into the sea. The elite of his officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The floods covered them and they sank to the depths like a stone. Moses and his people are crossing the Red Sea on dry land. It's split apart. And then Pharaoh's army follows them through, but God closes the sea over the top of him and it's described as the Tahome drowning the chariots. Psalm 71 says, you caused me to experience many troubles and misfortunes, but you will revive me again. You will bring me up again, even from the depths of the earth. That word depths is the Tahome. So the psalmist, he takes this idea of these dark, watery ocean depths, and he applies it to death itself. The darkness, the sea, comes to represent death, disorder, chaos. These, these metaphors are meant to stand in for all the existential dread 
at the heart of all of our fears. This is why when we get to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Revelation 21.1 says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I've heard it said that like surfers are really bummed out because there's no sea in heaven. That's not what this means. This is, again, this is a metaphor. John is saying all that chaos, all that death, all that destruction, there's no place for that here. Revelation 21.4 says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. In Genesis 1, creation is a contrast between chaos and disorganization and function and order. And when we think about existence in the ancient world, we need to think about coming to a place of function out of chaos. John Walton again says, these primeval cosmic waters are the classic form that non-existence takes in the functionally oriented ancient world. And Tim Mackey writes, I I think if we could sit down with these biblical authors and help them see our cosmology, I think they would want us to equate the dark waters of Tahome to our concept of nothingness. So the picture of the beginning of the world is this dark, chaotic, dangerous ocean. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The spirit of God over the surface of the waters, just like the darkness was over the surface of the waters, right? The waters covered in darkness, covered in chaos, they're called to home, but when The spirit of God covers the waters. Moses uses a different word. The word is mayim. And that's just the word for water in the Bible. It's no big deal. The spirit of God is here. It's just water now. And as we think through, remember the the ancient context, what are the first readers of this book thinking well, the Israelites came out of Egypt and in Egypt, the god Atum He's born from the waters. The waters exist eternally and their God comes up out of the waters. In Babylon, Marduk, he defeats the waters to become the chief God. But what Moses said is, no, no, no. Our God doesn't come from the waters. Our God doesn't defeat the waters. Our God is primary. He is in control of the waters. The waters are his to do what he wants with. They are not in rebellion against him. And, and I'm, af- I'm afraid we're, we're so discipled by things like Star Wars, where there's a light side and a dark side. And that's a gr- I love Star Wars. It's a great story. But, you know, you never really know who's going to win. Sometimes the light side feels stronger. Sometimes the dark side feels stronger. They're pretty equal and opposite, but that's not the picture that the Bible paints. God is in control of everything. The darkness, the chaos, they are nothing compared to him. And he bends them to his will. 
disorder and chaos that are not a threat to be defeated. They're just a neutral canvas that he can do what he wants with. And as we're going to continue to read, the waters aren't destroyed. They're controlled, they're harnessed, and they're ordered for the benefit of the creation. The next several verses, they're going to be given a function. They're going to be given a job to do. John Collins says, there is no plot conflict in the first chapter of Genesis. It's like watching Bob Ross paint. You ever watch Bob Ross paint his happy little trees? Yeah, there's not, nothing ever bad happens in that show. Even if he makes a mistake, he's like, okay, we'll just go a different direction. But, and it's striking though, and, and, we, and we looked at it a couple weeks ago, when you read about Marduk taking control of the world in Babylonian culture, this world empire, like there's, there's this battle and Tiamat, the chaotic sea dragon, has all of these like scorpion troops. It's super weird and they attack and there's all this fighting and bloodshed and violence. And Moses is like, yeah, that's not how it happened. That's not how it works. God is in complete control of this universe and he does what he wants with it. What, what should we do with this first? I mean, we could, we could keep reading. We're not going to. This is as far as we're going to get today. I want to start talking a little bit about us. I want you to think about this, this chaos, this, this functionless, disorganized, unhelpful chaos. Because this is what the Bible says is the end of sin. God's word talks about sin as disobedience to God. There's, there's these things that God lays out that this is how you're supposed to live your life. This is the order that I have established in the universe. And if you go against that, we call it sin or transgression or lawlessness. I talk a lot about it. It's, it's just that broken part inside of you that does the things that don't work. And sometimes we just think of sin simply as disobedience. God's got these rules, and if you break the rules, then you've done something wrong. I, uh, we, were, um, we were outside, or uh, we weren't, uh, my kids were outside the other day. I think it was on Monday at our community group. We were inside doing Bible study, and the kids were outside playing. And I told my youngest daughter, I don't want you to play in the dirt. She loves playing in the dirt. It's her favorite thing. I said, tonight, don't play in the dirt. That's my, like, arbitrary dad rule, right? Like, there's no, there's no like, universal law that says you shouldn't play in the dirt. I even, I let her play in the dirt sometimes, but because I am a parent and I can just do what I want and tell my children to behave the way I want them to behave, I said, today I don't want you to play in the dirt. And sometimes we think that about God. God's just got all these rules. He's like, you know, I just, I just don't want you to be happy. I don't want you to have fun. And I don't want you to do those things because I said so. But that's not how the Bible describes sin. Sin is not just disobedience. It is that. But it's also a road that leads back to the to home, to the chaos. Listen to Job 22. One of Job's friends who's accusing him of sin, he says, 
Does he, does God correct you and take you to court because of your piety? Isn't your wickedness abundant and aren't your iniquities endless? For you took collateral from your brothers without cause, stripping off their clothes and leaving them naked. You gave no water to the thirsty and withheld food from the famished, while the land belonged to a powerful man and an influential man lived on it. You set widows away empty-handed and the strength of the fatherless was crushed. Therefore, snares surround you, sudden death terrifies you, or darkness so you cannot see and a flood of waters covers you. Job's friend says the to home is coming for you because of your wickedness. Now, we find out in Job that he hasn't been wicked, that he's being falsely accused of these things, but the idea is that sin is directly connected to this chaos. Isaiah 44, 9 says, all who make idols are nothing and what they treasure benefits no one. The word nothing is tohu, the word empty, formless. The pursuit of idols, fame, riches, pleasure, status, security, control, they're a waste, they're empty. John 3 John writes, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John accuses us of being drawn to the darkness, to the chaos, instead of the light of Christ. We're not gonna get into it deep, but when we talk about the flood narrative, what the flood is about is, is the wickedness of these people and God just saying, it doesn't say that God gets angry. It says that God is sad and God just fast forwards their journey back to chaos. Says if this is how you're all gonna live your life, the end of that is death and destruction and I'm just gonna make it faster. And the Tahom covers the world in judgment. Sin is breaking God's law. It is spitting in the face of a God who knows better, but it's the reason that God cares about how we live our lives is because sin is destructive. Colossians 1, Paul writes, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him, we have redemption, the very forgiveness of sins. And in the next verse, Paul is going to break into a poem about how Jesus is the creator that holds the world together. God doesn't just hate sin because he needs control or just because he gets upset when people don't do what they're told. God hates sin because it is killing you. Slowly, little by little, those, those glances at beautiful people that are just a little bit too long, that low-level anger that just feels too good to let go of, knowing deep down that you're just a little bit better than those other people. Those things are killing you slowly. They're dragging you back into the to home, into the deep, into the darkness. And the terrible thing is so often we are willingly participating in it. 
in this second verse in Genesis, we are primed to recognize that there is a fundamental reality in the world that brings life and order and fruitfulness and beauty. And sin isn't just breaking God's laws, which it is, but it's walking out of step with that reality. Next week, we're going to see the waters tamed and shaped and transformed into something good and beautiful simply because the Spirit of God is there. It doesn't take, it doesn't take a great battle. It doesn't take a magic incantation. It just takes God to show up, and he speaks. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, The old has passed away and see, the new has come. And so I don't know where we're all at today. Many of us in this place would call ourselves Christians. We are are followers of Jesus. We have pledged our allegiance to King Jesus and believing the good news that he is King of kings and Lord of lords and by his cross, he has made a way for us to be made right with God. And yet we're still flirting with the darkness. We're still engaging in practices and attitudes and beliefs about ourselves and about others that are tilting us away from the light and back into death and disorder and disintegration and chaos. I think about the the scene in uh, Avengers Infinity War where Thanos finally wins and snaps his fingers and everybody kind of turns to dust. This is what is happening, except it's really, really slow. Little by little, we're just slowly turning to dust as we engage with these things that drag us back into chaos. And maybe some of us here, you're not a Christian. You, you, maybe you've, you've been in Christian circles. Maybe you, you've, you're exploring the, the, the claims of Christ. That's awesome. We want you to be here. You're welcome here. But the whole ordering of your life is pointing headlong into that dark, cold ocean of chaos. And it might not feel that way, but little by little, day by day, the choices that you make are disordered and functionless and formless. And the promise of Christ is that he, we sang it, he, he, will, he will save you from the waves. He will pull you from the sea. He will reorder your life. He will give it purpose and function. And he will make you a new creation. Not because of some thing that we have to accomplish, not because we have to get ourselves in order, but just like in the passage in Genesis, the spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters. No matter what the mess looks like in your life, Jesus is here and he is speaking life over you, paid for by the blood of his cross. And all we're on the hook for is to trust him, to follow him. So we're going we're gonna to stop there for this week. We're going to get into day one 
one through three, I think, next week. But we've got a few minutes to engage with some questions. So if you've got a question, text it to that number. We'll see what we got here. In all of the competing ancient stories of which God created the world, each civilization's God is in control. What makes the God of the Bible the one who really is? That's good. So I think there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of things you could say about that, but from the, just from the literature, which is kind of what we've been looking at over the last few weeks, all of the gods of the ancient civilizations are secondary, uh, Marduk in Babylon, he's like the grandson of the original God, and he wins this battle and takes over the world. There's no story like that in the, in the Hebrew scriptures. God is God from the very beginning. And, and it makes sense in the sense that um, we have all of these cultures kind of coexisting in the ancient world, and they needed a way to talk about their religious systems. And, and they believe, you read it in the Old Testament. You talk, the Philistines talk about the God they serve and the God the Israelites serve. And, and everybody's got their own God and there's this hierarchy and that's fine. And, and the gods are these tribal deities that the, Dagon is responsible for the Philistines and um, Baal is responsible for the Canaanites and Yahweh, he's the one that's responsible for the Jewish people. But the Jewish people don't have that story. They say, no. All of your gods are false gods. All of your gods, they, they don't just, they're not just weak, they're non-existent, they're not real. The only God that is real is Yahweh. And he shows that he's real in the literature. He shows that he's the greatest by being the first. Um, the, in, in philosophy circles, we call it the, the primary cause, the unmoved mover, the thing at the very, very beginning. There's no cosmic water that bursts the God. There's no, um, there's no hierarchy of gods. If you like study Greek mythology with Zeus and all of Zeus's kids and they're all fighting, it's like, um, I don't know, some like uh, cable reality show. But that's just not the case when, when the Jewish people open up their Bible and ask questions about the beginning of the world. Yahweh is on the throne from the very beginning. He is the ultimate source of everything. And there's nothing that he is accountable to. And that's unique in ancient literature. It's, it's, it's one of the incredibly unique things. Even, even non-believing um, Ancient um, historians and scholars will say like, yeah, there's something in this account of creation that's different than the way everyone else conceived the world. It's one of several things. And while they use some of the same language and some of the same word pictures, Yahweh is a very different God than Marduk and Baal. And as that brings us up to today, I mean, I think that's incredibly compelling as is, is if, is if we have a relationship with the source of life, that's a big deal. There's something, there's something solid behind our faith. There's, there's not a power struggle happening. Well, maybe, you know, maybe my friend over here, maybe the thing that he's living his life after, maybe that really is better. And God says, no. I 
am responsible for all of this and I know what's best and I want what's best for you. Okay, that was the only question this morning. We're going to take communion. This is this, this weekly ritual that Jesus institutes, right? He says, do this in remembrance of me. Take this cup, take this bread. These are my body, my blood. They weren't. He hadn't gone to the cross yet. They were symbolic. But he says, every time you eat this bread, every time you drink from this cup, remember me. Spend some time thinking about me. And so we make it part of our weekly practice here when we gather to remember Jesus. And we remember that he is king of kings. He's Lord of lords. It means he's the highest. He's at the top. He claims we didn't read it in Colossians, but, but it, it talks about how he's the one responsible for creation. When we see God in Genesis, we know that Jesus is there. And communion is this opportunity for us to reaffirm our allegiance to Christ. We are people that stake everything that we have and everything that we are on Jesus, on who he is, but by, because by his grace, by his goodness, he has created a people, his church. And so as we, as Jackson comes back up and, and we sing, um, I just encourage you to, to spend some time thinking about what are the things that you put in first place? Are you, are you engaging in things that are leading you back to darkness and destruction, to, to home, to the, to the watery depths? Is that the trajectory of your life or are you letting Jesus lead you into the goodness and the grace and the beauty that he wants you to find? You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.